I want to show you a bunch of pictures this morning, and I want to see if you can guess what they all have in common. Here's the first picture for those of you who are not here and are just listening online. I'll try to explain these. This is a, this is a math question, and the person has been asked to find X, and what they've done is just circle X, and they say, here it is. Here's picture number two. This is a parking gate arm. <laughs> that it drops down, but it doesn't come close to covering the area that uh, people are supposed to stop at. Here's the third one, uh, a faucet in which the water doesn't run into the sink. And then finally, this one, a treadmill that says running is not recommended uh, on it. Anyone pick up what all of those have in common? Anybody? They're all examples of missing the point. Would you agree? When you install a parking gate with a drop-down arm that doesn't stop people from going through it, when you install a faucet that, doesn't, that the water doesn't run into the sink, and when you build a treadmill that can't be run on, you have completely missed the point of that thing. And not only have you missed the point, but at least in a couple of the cases, you've rendered the items completely useless. Well, this morning, as we wrap up our series that we've been calling Seven Letters, we're going to see a church that has completely missed the point to an absurd level. And as a result, Jesus says that it is completely useless. So pick up your Bibles, if you would, this morning and turn with me in your Bibles to what's the book that we've been looking at throughout this series? Anybody know? Yes, the book of Revelation. Turn in the book of Revelation to chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3. And for those of you who are new, we've been looking at uh, seven letters that Jesus dictated. They're found in Revelation chapter two, uh, chapters 2 and 3. Jesus dictated these letters to seven specific first century churches who were suffering under the persecution of the Roman Empire for their faith in Jesus Christ. And we've been using those letters to do some self-analysis here of City Church at the beginning of 2019. Now, the letter that we're going to look at today was written to a church in a place called Laodicea. Let's start reading Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Now, we really need to stop here for just a moment and mark the words that Jesus uses to describe himself here. Anybody know? what a mic drop moment is. Do you know what a mic drop moment is? Yeah. It's when, you, uh, it's when someone says uh, or does something that in their mind is so utterly profound, so definitive, that there's nothing more to be said, nothing more to be done. Like it's over. Drop the mic and walk off the stage. Well, when Jesus says that he is the amen, the word amen is a mic drop word that means definitive, certain, true. There is nothing more to be said. He is the faithful and the true witness about everything, about you, me, this church, that church, life, the meaning of life, what God is like, the way to salvation, everything. What he says cannot merely be dismissed as subjective opinion. And anyone who does dismiss what Jesus says does so at his or her own peril. That's what this word, the amen, means. Moreover, he says that he is the ruler of God's creation. Now, I want you to listen to how the apostle Paul describes Jesus in the book of Colossians. He says this. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, go ahead and put that verse up if you would. Put put that verse up from the book of Colossians. 
chapter 1. Here we go. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him how many things were created? All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. How many things were created by him and for him? All things were created by him and for him. He is before how many things? All things. And in him, how many things hold together? And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in how much he might have the supremacy. Everything. Here's the point of all of this. Jesus is the point. That's the point. Jesus is the point. He is the subjective and objective reason for your existence. He is the central point of the universe. He is the summum bonum of all that is good. He has supremacy over everything, any person, any community, any people, any nation who does not recognize him as such is destined for futility and ultimately for destruction. So before we go any further, I want to ask everyone here this morning, And everyone who listens to this sermon online, what are you doing about Jesus? Because you cannot get around him. Understand, he is the elephant in every room, every home, every business, on every street in America, on every dirt road, in every third world country. You cannot get around Jesus. You can only go through Jesus. One way or another, either in this life or in the next, you will have to deal with Jesus. Better that you deal with him now than after you die, because by that time, it will be too late. That's the point of all of that. Now, before we read any further, I want to just remind you for the last time that, that most of these letters take a, uh, have taken a common form. Usually, uh, Jesus has a commendation for the church, something that they're doing well. Uh, he has a complaint, something that's a, uh, a threat to their existence as a church. He has a correction for the complaint, and then he has a comfort. But For this church, as you will see, Jesus breaks from that form. There is no commendation for this church whatsoever. And so I want to begin this morning by by looking at how Jesus diagnoses the health of this church. Let's look at the diagnosis of the health of this church. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Circle that word spit. It's actually the Greek word emeo, which means to vomit. Jesus' diagnosis of this church is that it is nauseatingly lukewarm. Now this this cold, hot, lukewarm metaphor would have hit Laodicea right where they live, Uh, Laodicea uh, sat in a valley that lacked a natural water supply, and so it was dependent upon two neighboring cities for their water. About six miles to the north, there sat the city of Hierapolis, which was known for its its, uh, hot springs, where the water was about 95 degrees. On the other side of Laodicea was the city of Colossae, which had cold, refreshing water. Laodicea had built an aqueduct to access the waters in those two places, but the problem was that by the time either got to Laodicea, the water was tepid. It was, it was lukewarm. And so Jesus uses this geographical reality to diagnose this church's condition, and he says that they, like their water, were nauseatingly lukewarm, essentially uh, useless. They were useless. 
Now, now what does that mean? What does it mean practically when a church is lukewarm or when it's useless? Well, we could, we could summarize it by saying this, that a useless church, a useless church has the form of Christianity without the power of Christianity. Can you put that up on the screen? A useless church has the form of Christianity without the power of Christianity. In other words, it has all the trappings of Christianity. It has the building. It has the services. It has the people. It has the music. It has the sermons. It has the programs. But the people are just going through the motions. Uh, There was no edge to the people at Laodicea. The form of Christianity with none of the life-changing power of the gospel. And listen, I don't know where you ever got the sense that churches were to be nice, genteel places because the church was designed to have an edge to create explosive change within people and within a culture, not just to be a country club or a cruise ship for the people who attend it. The church was designed to have impact because it carries within it the explosive power of the gospel, but not this church, not this church. Whatever it was, it was not that. They had the form of Christianity, but they did not have the power. And the question is, how in the world had they gotten that way? Because it wasn't always like this for the church in Laodicea. Just three decades uh, earlier, the Apostle Paul mentioned the church at Laodicea five different times in his letter to the Colossians, which is what I just actually read to you from a moment ago. And in none of those references is there even a hint of this church being lukewarm. What happened to this church over time? Jesus talks about that in verse 17. Let's look at what Jesus says. We've seen the diagnosis of the church. It's useless. It's lukewarm. It's tepid. What's the cause? What caused this church to become that way? Look at verse 17. Jesus says, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. And there it is. There it is. It was their wealth that over time had removed this church's edge and had emptied it of its power. Laodicea, uh, you see, was a, it was a highly commercial and extremely wealthy city made up of wealthy bankers and financiers. In fact, it was so wealthy that in 8060, uh, there was an earthquake that had destroyed the city, but rather than taking a loan from the Roman government to rebuild their city, uh, the people of Laodicea were so wealthy that they'd financed the rebuilding of the city themselves. That's how wealthy they were. And over time, this wealth has emptied this church of its power. Now, I don't know if you, those of you who've been with us, I don't know if you felt this or not, but the thing that's so striking to me about this letter in comparison to the other letters that we have read is the relative calm in and around this church. Did you notice that? In some of the churches to whom Jesus wrote, the people were suffering persecution for their courageous and unyielding belief in Christ. In some of the other churches, they were making compromises because of persecution by worshiping false idols and practicing the wicked rituals of the false gods. There's always something going on in those churches, but not this church. In fact, things seem very calm, very peaceful in Laodicea. And we don't know this for sure, but this seems to suggest 
that on the one hand, their wealth had made them so innocuous, so edgeless, so powerless, that the Roman Empire didn't even notice them. Like They had no edge. Why bother them? And on the other hand, They'd become so content in their wealth that spirituality of any kind, even the worship of false idols, had no real appeal or urgency to them. Who needs the gods when we're so rich? Who needs heaven in the next life when I have heaven here in this life? They were useless, you see, because their wealth had made them arrogant and self-sufficient. We do not need a thing, they said. Now, I think it's easy to misunderstand when you read this. If you're not particularly familiar with what the Bible has to say about money, you need to understand that Jesus is not saying that being wealthy is bad or wrong or evil. Jesus isn't against wealth. The Bible takes a very nuanced position on money. On the one hand, it says a lot of positive things about money and about wealth. There's many very godly characters in the Bible who were very, very wealthy. Abraham, Job, King David, to name just just a few. Yet at the same time, the Bible is also full of warnings about the spiritual danger of wealth. Namely, and let me just summarize what the Bible says here about the danger of wealth. Namely this, that wealth distorts your perception of who you really are and what you really need. That's the danger of wealth. Wealth distorts your perception of who you really are and what you really need, which is precisely what has happened in this church. They say they don't need anything. But look at what Jesus says about them in the last half of verse 17. He says, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. There is a gap so big you could drive a hundred Brinks trucks between their perception of themselves as having no need and Jesus' perception of them as having every need, wretched, poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. These people are living in a state of massive self-deception, which has taken the edge off and the power out of their faith. They have a form of Christianity without the power. Now, let's talk for just a minute about how that happens, how wealth distorts your perception of who you really are. How does that happen? Well, you know, the gospel is very clear that a person can only be justified through the Lord Jesus Christ. But the default position of the human heart is that we want to self-justify. And so when a self-justifying heart experiences really any kind of financial success relative to other people, When a self-justifying heart experiences financial success, you almost always begin to generalize your success into all of the areas of your life. It tends to make you overconfident of your own intuition and your own intellect and your own wisdom. Because after all, wasn't it your intuition, intellect, and wisdom that got you that wealth in the first place? Now, not all wealthy people are overconfident. Not all wealthy people are insufferable know-it-alls, but there are many who are. You may have been in a room with, I've been in a room with many of them over the years and often just rolled my eyes at some of the ridiculously ignorant things that they have said. But see, wealth can make you lose your sense of teachability. 
Few people will tell you that you're wrong about anything because if they do, they'll lose their access to you and to your wealth. And so it gets easier and easier to inoculate yourself against any criticism or any reality checks. And so very easily, over time, your wealth becomes the sum total of your identity, how much you have, not losing what you have, comparing your wealth to how much others have slowly but surely, becomes the sum total of your identity. And it distorts the perception, therefore, of who you really are. Which then leads to a distortion of what you really need. And here's what I mean. If if you're addicted to drugs or, or to alcohol, over time, you build up a tolerance to it. You know, like when you get high or when you get drunk in the beginning, you know, whatever got you high or drunk in the beginning, well, it's not enough anymore. You need to have more of it to get the same high, right? Well, the same thing happens with money. Let me just give you an example from my own life of how this happens. Uh, When I was in college, I lived in absolute squalor. I didn't have any money at all. One of the places that I lived, and and I lived in a lot of terrible places, but I think the worst uh, was a little two-story building out in the middle of nowhere that had two apartments in it. No one lived in the other apartment because the building was in such bad condition, uh, condition that it actually it actually leaned a little bit. And so when the wind blew, you could feel uh, the building moving back and forth. Well, you know, that was all we could afford, so we lived there. Now, my roommate and I, of course, we couldn't afford a cleaning lady, and so you can imagine how much cleaning two guys did. Seriously, I once found a mushroom growing in my room. It was that bad, Okay. But I was as happy as I could be. I was living on my own. I thought this was fantastic. Well, fast forward uh, about, I don't know, what, three decades or so, and about five or six years ago when I walked into my oldest son's dorm room at IU, I nearly gagged. It was filthy, and it was so small that I felt claustrophobic. All I wanted to do was get out of there. Now, why? What had happened? What had happened to me? over all those years. Here's what had happened. Money. I'm not rich by any stretch of the imagination. But I don't have to live like that anymore. And having uh, the money to not live like that, well, that feels very much like a need to me these days. And if I did have to live like that, or if there, or there is even a threat of that, I'd scramble Uh, to make enough money not to have to live like that again. Because what way back in my college days I would have considered a luxury, well, now I think of as a necessity. Money, you see, can easily become the most significant need of my life, making money the point of my life, not not Jesus. And so it, it distorts not only who you really are, but it begins to distort what you really need. You need more money, not more Jesus. You need money. And this is what has happened here in Laodicea. These people have completely missed the point of life. Money has become the subject and the object of their life, the central reason for their existence, the central object of their universe. But what did we see 
a moment ago, in Jesus' description of himself in this letter, and in Paul's description of Jesus from this passage, from the passage in the book of Colossians, what we saw is that Jesus is the point of human existence. Jesus is the central object of the universe. All things were created by him and for him. He holds all things together. The people in this church in Laodicea wouldn't be alive without Jesus. They wouldn't take their next breath without Jesus. They wouldn't have a dime to their name if it weren't for Jesus, who gave them the gifts and the talents and the abilities and the opportunities to earn wealth. Their eternal destiny is dependent upon Jesus, and yet they have come to a point that they believe that they do not need a thing. More specifically, that they do not need Him. This church is a case study in missing the point. In fact, how badly have they missed the point? Look down at verse 20. Look down at verse 20. Jesus says, if you can put that verse up on the screen, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now, there's a vivid picture for you. You know that your church has missed the point when Jesus is locked outside of it, knocking on the door to get in. These people are living in a cocoon of wealth that has given them a sense of self-reliance and self-sufficiency that is completely out of touch with reality and that has locked Jesus outside the door of their church. It has stolen the power of their Christianity, and it has left them with only the form of Christianity. And you need to know that smarter people than I have drawn the comparison between this church at Laodicea and the decline of the church in America today. Even though most of us wouldn't consider ourselves wealthy, we have more than most people throughout history have had and most people alive on the earth today have. And the wealth of the American church has distorted our perception of reality. It's taken away our edge. It's taken away our sense of urgency, taken away our power, and it has largely left us with just the form of Christianity in America. And let me just show you what I mean. I wonder how many of us in the room this morning, how many of us listening to this sermon online think that our biggest need this morning is Jesus or more of Jesus? And how many of us think that our biggest need this morning is more money? And if that's the case, if you think that the biggest need that you have this morning is more money, you have missed the point of human existence. When we think that our greatest need is more money, we lose sight of the fact that our greatest calling as people individually and collectively is to serve, is to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ by spreading the goodness and the name and the gospel of Jesus Christ to the rest of humankind. I wonder how many of us here today understand that the reason that the Lord Jesus Christ has given you the capacity to work and to make money is not just so that you can enjoy its comforts, but so that the goodness and the name and the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the central object of the universe and in whom and for whom all things were created, that his name, his goodness, his gospel can be spread to the rest of humankind. Is that how you view your money and your capacity to make money? 
Because if not, may I say this ever so gently, you have missed the point of life. The old evangelist and founder of Methodism, his name was John Wesley. Uh, Wesley recognized this tendency of wealth to distort a person's perception of reality. And so I want you to listen to something he wrote. It's a little lengthy, but it's worth it. It was, uh, he wrote this in 1786 in a piece of work called Thoughts on Methodism. Remember, this was 1786 that he wrote this. Thoughts on Methodism. He wrote, the Methodists in every place grow diligent and frugal. Consequently, they increase in goods. Hence, they proportionally increase in pride. By the way, just very interesting that he says that frugality can also be a form of greed that causes pride. So they grow diligent and frugal. Consequently, they increase in goods. Hence, they proportionally increase in pride, just like the church of Laodicea, in anger, in the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. So although the form of religion remains, the spirit is swiftly vanishing away. What way then, I ask again, he says, can we take that our money may not sink us to the nethermost hell? There is one way, and there is no other under heaven. If those who gain all they can and save all they can will likewise give all they can, then the more they gain, the more they will grow in grace and the more treasure they will lay up in heaven. Money is an excellent gift of God answering the noblest ends in the hands of His children. In other words, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is food for the hungry, drink for the thirsty, Raiment for the naked. It gives to the traveler and to the stranger where to lay his head. By it we may supply the place of a husband to the widow and of a father for the fatherless. We may be a defense for the oppressed, a means of health to the sick, of ease to them that are in pain. It may be as eyes to the blind, as feet to the lame, yea, a lifter up from the gates of death. And is that how you see the purpose of your wealth, however little or great you would say that your wealth is. Is that how you see the purpose of it? To spread the goodness of Jesus, the name of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus to people all over the world? Is that how you see it? The Bible doesn't teach that money or wealth is evil by any stretch of the imagination, but it does recognize that inherent in wealth is the tendency to distort your perception of reality and what it is that you and, frankly, other people really need. And when you lose sight of the fact that what you need is Jesus and what people need is Jesus and that, that's the, that he is the point of human life and human existence, well, when you lose sight of that, The church ends up with the form of Christianity without any of the power of Christianity. It's the diagnosis and that's the cause of this church's uselessness. What's the remedy? Look at verse 18. Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me. That's, of course, a figure of speech. They can't buy this from Jesus. But he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest 
and repent. Now, each of those metaphors represents uh, Jesus' call for the people of Laodicea to repent in verse 19. And each of those metaphors would have hit home for the people in this church. Gold, well, of course, we've talked about their wealth. Jesus is challenging them to repent trusting in their physical wealth and to become rich in spiritual wealth by placing him at the center of their lives, not money. White clothes. Um, Laodicea was famous uh, not only for their wealth, but also for the black wool of the sheep that they raised. Jesus says that what they needed was not black. They needed white clothing, which symbolized Christ's righteousness imputed to to them through his death on the cross to cover their shame. These people needed to return to the cross of Christ as the basis for their righteousness. No amount of money in the world will remove your shame. Only Christ's blood and his righteousness will do that. They needed salve for their eyes. There was a medical school located in Laodicea, and it offered a special salve to heal common eye troubles of the Middle East. Well, these people had taken their eyes off of Jesus, and as a result, they have missed the point of life. The point of life is not accumulating wealth. It's to worship and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and to spread his goodness and his name and his gospel throughout the world. These people had missed it. Jesus says to them, repent. That's the remedy. Repent. Take your eyes off your money. Put your eyes on me, Jesus says. Now, believe it or not, this church is not so far gone that there is no hope for them. That's the good news here. Jesus specializes in resurrections. I want to look just as we close now at the hope for this church in Laodicea. Verse 19, Jesus says, and we've read this verse already, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on the throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There is still hope for this church. Repent, Jesus says, and there is hope. I will restore the power to your church. I will bring the edge back to your church. I started this sermon with some pictures. I want to end it with a picture too. This particular picture, if we could put that up. I don't know if you can see that from where you're at, but this picture was painted by an artist named William Holman Hunt in 1854. When the picture was unveiled, you can see it's a picture of Jesus standing at a door and knocking. When the picture was unveiled, uh, people said that uh, that the painter had made a mistake because if you look closely, there's no latch I don't know if you can see it that well from where you sit, but there's no latch, there's no doorknob on the outside of this particular door. People said, well, the painter had made a mistake. But the painter, William Holman Hunt, had said that he painted it that way intentionally because the latch to the door was on the inside of the church. Jesus was knocking on the door because he was seeking fellowship with these people. He loved them. He wanted to bless them, but it was up to them to open the door and let him in. For those of you who are here this morning who've never come to the place that you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, understand that this is one of the unique things about Christianity. No other religion in the world has a God who seeks fellowship with you. 
But Jesus himself said that he came to seek and to save, to seek and to save what is lost. And as I said earlier, you will have to deal with Jesus sometime. On the cross, Jesus, the center of the universe, who owns all of the accumulated wealth of the earth, became poor so that you could be rich. And he did it by dying for you and for your sins. This morning, in the privacy of your seat, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop trusting in money. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in anything else but the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him today. For those of you who are here today who have believed in Jesus, this passage of Scripture is a call to examine yourself, to see if you have become lukewarm. Because your sense may well be that your greatest need in this life is more money, not more of Jesus. This passage is a call to examine yourself. City church will only be as effective as the individual people in this church recognize that the point of life is Jesus and spreading his goodness, his name, and his gospel throughout the city of Evansville and throughout the world. This passage is a call to self-examination. Has wealth distorted your perception of who you are and what you really need? Have you missed the point? Jesus Christ says, own it, repent, and he will bring back the, God, the power of the gospel to your life. And to that extent, he will bring it to this church as well. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Uh, Lord Jesus, as we wrap up this series, this is a very powerful call to self-examination. In this culture, perhaps money is the greatest idol. Perhaps the tendency to trust money is greater than anything else. As we see it flaunted, as we see it flaunted on social media, every advertisement that we see tells us that what we need is more money, more to buy that product. as investment firms advertise and tell us that we need more and more money for retirement. Lord Jesus, it's so easy for money to become the object that we trust and the thing that we believe that we need the most. Lord, would you give us this morning the capacity for honest self-examination to recognize that you're not, you're not condemning us. You understand our weakness. And that you are so willing upon our repentance to bring back the edge and the power of the gospel to our lives and to a church, to this church. Lord, would you give us the capacity to own this, to repent, and to put our trust back in you, not in money, to see our capacity for making money. And not as the point of life itself, but as the ability to spread the goodness and the name and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the city of Evansville and to the rest of the world. Because you, Lord Jesus, are the point of the universe. Let us be a church that is dangerous, one that is full of power, that has edge, and that the people around us take notice, that they do not miss us, that they do not just look and say, oh, you know, they have a building, they have programs, they have music, they have sermons. But no, that they, that this church 
brings life change to people. Let that be the story of City Church. For now, and if you tarry for the next hundred years, would the power of the gospel be very real here at this church. And it is in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship today and pray because you are the central object of the universe and you have supremacy over all things. We love you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.